This is a Soulfire production. everybody how you doing how you living how you feeling you can't respond because it's kind of a one-way situation but i can feel your energies i can feel them and it's 420 so i hope you're baked right now i support that and if you haven't noticed some big news just dropped literally waited to do the show until this news dropped let's check it out See the jury in the above entitled manner as to count one Unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony. Find the defendant guilty. As to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act. Find the defendant guilty. As to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. Guilty on all charges. Derek Chauvin. 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 I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm also not going to sit here and like do a song and dance. I think that this is, I think it's appropriate. I think the dude fucked up in a big way. We're not going to cover it too much on this show because I'm not a legal scholar, even though many people on the internet will pretend to be. I think there will be some appeals. I think that uh, there was a lot of, of, of fuckery happening outside of the courtroom by people like Joe Biden and Maxine Waters, which we will talk about down later on on the run sheet here in the show. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing and I think that you know somebody had to fall here this was such, our world's been torn apart by this whole thing and it's shown a lot of of the the dirty underbelly of what happens in American society and, and it's been really interesting and it's been it's exposed a lot a lot about us a lot about the world uh, I, I'm, I'm glad and kind of relieved this is over of course we will have some appeals and it'll, it's very possible that all three counts will not stand um, particularly the secondary murder piece but we'll see and there will still be a lot of discussion around this of course it won't be long until you know another black guy gets shot by a white cop or, or killed by a black cop in some way or a white cop in some way and uh, we have another riot that is then or you know the race war that's then leveraged for political gain by both sides and all this shit. It's just like this, this won't end, right? This has been too, this whole situation has been too profitable, has been too advantageous and has been uh, just really leveraged hard by our politicians on both sides. And it's been a great fundraising um, position for them to, to stand on or, or soapbox for them to stand on. And it's been sad to watch it devolve into that. But then again, that's what the world, that's the world that we have now when everything is politics, the cultural war is politics, everything is politics. And this is how it's going to be going forward for this foreseeable future, which is frustrating and completely fucked, but there's not a whole lot that we can do about it. But what we can do, there's a few things we can do. One is you can support people that are creating content independently, myself included, by joining the Patreon, the Politically Homeless Patreon, where you can get an extra episode every week that is crowdsourced from the Patreon for the Patreon just for you because the people in this Patreon are special. They're special near and dear to my heart. Speaking of which, got a new member, Nick. Welcome to the Politically Homeless Patreon. I appreciate you and I love you deeply. So deeply. Probably a little bit uncomfortably deeply for you. But hey, it is what it is. Uh, another way you can support the show is by jumping over to Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star review and some kind words. If you drop a question in that review, 
something you're curious about, nothing's off limits. Just let it fly. Whatever feels good for you. Whatever you're cu- really curious about when it comes to things that I can ramble about, um, drop that in the review as well. I'll read it on the show. Whatever, no big deal. So, few changes, some things that are going to be a little different about today's show. Usually what I do is narrow down to about three or four topics. Today, I think we have nine. Of course, there's a lot of stuff going on. Like I said, we're not going to get into the show and stuff except for what we just did right now, so we'll leave that alone. But there's a lot of stuff going on here and just a lot of fun things that I've into. And what I thought I would do instead of narrowing it down to three or four is just go over all the stuff that I want to talk about that I find interesting and and productive and just fun in general. I think sometimes we get so serious talking about the shit that's really frustrating and and heavy and... Um, there's some fun stuff that happened this week and some fun things that are being floated around. I guess we can call them fun, whatever the fuck they are. They're interesting as well. They're just goofy. I think goofy is a better word for many things that are floating around the cultural zeitgeist today. But anyways, we're going to do more of that. We're going to try to move through them a little quicker and you know make a few changes. What I am doing, though, and what I'm excited about is getting kind of bridging the gap between the Instagram community and the podcast community. Of course, they all they do overlap, but there's some people that just consume stuff on Instagram or just do the podcast, whatever. Here's what I'm doing. If you want to have a video submitted question or topic request, you can do that via Instagram. So all you have to do is take a video on your phone, make sure it's less than a minute because that's the limit um, that uh, I have tolerance for and also the limit that <laughs> that Instagram allows when you send a video and just DM me your video and we'll get it on the show. So we're going to have a video topic question submission via Instagram for a new show that's going to be happening on Friday. So our release schedule is going to be Tuesday, Friday, and the Patreon episode is recorded on Sunday um, because that's just the time that we like to hang out. We're just more of a, it's more of a cash, more of a cash type situation in the, in the Patreon. We're just having a good time and we have a little more freedom because we live behind that paywall where, um, you know, the moderators don't necessarily pass by or pass through as often, which makes me happy. <laughs> but anyways, if you want to do that, find me on Instagram at Connor Wanders. If you don't follow me already, you can submit a topic request or a video question via the DMs. Just make sure you record that on your phone, not on Instagram, and that you send it as an actual video, not like the 15-second clip bullshit. Like that, that's not, we're not doing that. It's got to be the full video, less than a minute. Make it happen. I think that's all the housekeeping we have today. And with all that, let's go ahead and get into it. It's time for the state of things. The state of things. Let's do it. Biden to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, a symbolic date. Without a doubt, there's a little bit of some theatrics going on there, which is fine. You know, theatrics, I guess, are important. Aesthetics are important. Um, but let's get into this article from Politico here. This is this is going to be we're going to we're going to play with this a little bit. And of course, I have some kind of anti. Uh, anti-imperialist leaning, so I'll have some other thoughts about this that are outside the scope of this article, but we'll play with it with this partisan outlet, Politico, and see what they have to say. President Joe Biden plans to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021, missing the May 1st deadline he inherited from the Trump administration, according to two congressional aides and a 
uh, senior ad- administration official official briefed on the plans. Huh. The decision which Biden is expected to announce this week will likely prompt the Taliban to renew attacks on the roughly 3,500 American troops there, which have largely halted since February 2020 agreement between the Trump administration and the Taliban officials. So see, within the second paragraph of this article, we have someone saying, oh, well, since we now we've, they decided that we're going to pull out on September 11th, that's going to prompt more attacks. There's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of that. Um, but it, it's a fun talking point if you're a war hawk and you're funded by the military-industrial complex, if Raytheon is one of your key donors, then yeah, I can see how you would take that party line. That makes sense. I mean, Liz Cheney would say something very similar. Maybe uh, Lindsey Graham would say something very similar too. And maybe what this whole thing is, is just the Biden administration being very hawkish in the way that they approach uh, the war machine, trying to um, agitate the Taliban into doing some, some attacks. That way they can stay there for longer. Wouldn't put it past them. Would not put it past them. The news comes just weeks after the Defense Secretary Lord uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, formerly of Raytheon, by the way, Lloyd Austin made his first visit to Afghanistan where he met with UF officials on the ground and Afghanistan President um, Arash Kahin in Kabul. Okay, so we have this idea. Okay, and we're not going to read any more of this article because it's all propaganda bullshit. So we have this idea, this concept that people are going to come out, we're going to have full troop withdrawal, uh, from Afghanistan on September 11th, which very well might happen. And I am very much for this withdrawal of troops and getting everybody the fuck out of there and only leaving people that are necessary to guard embassies or do whatever duties need to be done over there. But we definitely don't need 3,500 troops over there. That being said, do not fall for the smoke and mirrors bullshit. When you're watching this and following this story, do not fall for the bullshit. There's a lot of Trump did the same thing, right? Trump people will say that Trump was the most anti-war candidate of all time. All the dude did was fucking shuffle people around to make it look like they were leaving, increase the number of military contractors, which are off the books, right? So those don't show up in these official numbers, and then bomb the shit out of people with fucking drones, right? Increasing drone strikes by four hundred and some odd percent. So there's every every president since Bush has kind of gone through this system of like being anti-war in rhetoric, but not in practice. And I don't think Biden, I don't see Biden being any different except for the public opinion is very, very decisive in the direction they want to go with this war. And that is getting the fuck out. That being said, we do have troops all over the world waging wars that we just don't hear about. And we got to think about that through the context of Afghanistan, which has been a PR nightmare for the United States, a PR disaster for the United States. Because at first, and, and, and George W. Bush said this, they were going to crush the Taliban. Then the Obama administration came and it was going to be a cooperative government between the Taliban and whatever puppet government that the United States wanted to put in, right? So it was we, we they conceded a little bit. And now we're in a situation where with this withdrawal, it's most likely that the Taliban is going to take control of the government once we leave. So this is a 20-year failure. Let's not dress it up as anything else. This is our generation's Vietnam. It's a 20-year failure. The Taliban will most likely take control of the government. And that was likely to happen regardless because... What started as regime change turned into some kind of compromise, turned into a colossal failure, right? And it didn't do it in the way that most regime change wars that happen via the United States happen, which is very subtle and sneaky. It was very public. It was a public display of imperialism. And this says not. I don't want to say that. I, I hesitate to say stuff like this because the, I do respect the people that are out there doing the work, the troops on the ground, the boots on the ground. 
right? The men and women that, that are over there doing their job. This isn't on them, right? This is on the military industrial complex and the way that they have leveraged imperialism in a way that is very profitable for them and have disconnected themselves from the humanitarian component. And this is, this is tough. To, to, to think about how many lives were lost. And I'm not, we did lose thousands of American lives in the low thousands, but hundreds of thousands of civilians have died due to our actions in the Middle East. And this has been a long, I mean, we had this war for 20 years, but don't, think of, don't forget about the wars that were, that were going on just before that, right? We had a brief reprieve from until September 11th. And much of this has been very sketchy, very shady, lacks transparency, which of course war always does, but it ran its course and it, and it, it, you're seeing people try and paint this as some kind of, uh, uh, some kind of victory. Like, Oh, we did it. We can leave now. It's like, no, we, we, it was, it's a colossal failure. Can we not just take responsibility for our colossal failures when it comes to making war happen? You know, like it, we had this this article we just talked about last week where you know Biden's budget was a moderate increase that didn't even keep up with inflation, which is on par with the last 30 years. We spent the majority of the last 30 years in war all over the world. For what? For what? It's like it, it's not it's not effective. We want we want we want foreign leaders to be our puppets as as a country. I understand that. I mean, and I guess that makes sense. But in the same time, China has outflanked us in every way aside from boots on the ground. So our while while waging war is a very profitable business for the military industrial complex, we're getting we're still getting beat by a different country. So it doesn't really add up to me. There's there's so much about this that doesn't make a lot of sense, and I I want to be really cautious about celebrating this as some kind of victory. Um, when really it's, it's the, it's a conclusion of a failed regime change, plain and simple. It's not much more complicated than that. That was a tragedy for the people. We, 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 we went in there. That, that country is so much more fucked up than it was when we got there. So much more. And it's hard to see that. It's hard, and I don't want to celebrate this. I, I, there's nothing about this that, that makes me happy except for the fact that it's finally kind of coming to an end but it only the war on terror is not coming to an end like the idea and Biden even said this when he when he spoke about this like the war on terror still is going on and will still continue but it'll be done in a much more subtle way and that's actually more scary to me that we can still topple democratic democratic elected uh, leadership that we don't agree with for our own gains as a country and, and somehow convince ourselves that that's fucking okay. And if you don't support that, that you're not patriotic, like fuck all that noise. I have no interest in, in, in being a country that is hated by most of the country. You got to think about this kind of thing. Like how is the United States viewed by the rest of the world? And if you want to be a narcissistic asshole and say like, well, it doesn't fucking matter because we're the best. Like, well, you're a prick and no one fucking cares what you have to say. Like you've deluded yourself into believing that, that, that you have some kind of entitlement based upon the fact that you fell out of a person in this fucking country, which means nothing, nothing. And we're viewed, you know, China's viewed a certain way. Russia's viewed a certain way. If you think that we're, we're viewed as better than those countries in the way that we behave globally in our foreign policy, you're deluding yourself. It's like as a country, we are, we lack self-awareness, Right. 
Not only do our leaders and our political parties and many of the individuals that make up this country lack self-awareness and self basic self-reflection techniques, <laughs> but as a culture, we lack self-honesty. And that, that results in when you have the amount of power that the United States does with the complete lack of personal responsibility on a cultural level, Democrats, Republicans, leadership, all of them, you have situations like this. There's no one going to be held to account for, for what's happened in the 20 years that we spent over there, aside from the Afghani people, which are punished needlessly. So be on the lookout. That's, that's my take on this. Is just be on the lookout for the smoke and mirrors thing. Trump did it, and, and it worked for him in, in, in kind of propagandizing his situation. Like I said, even though he increased drone strikes and increased occupancy of, uh, of, of military contractors by thousands. Um, and, yeah, it, it, this is – I have so little faith. I have so little faith in something like this actually panning out, right? Like actually panning out in the way that they that they they, they say it's going to it. it. It seems like it may just be one more puzzle piece in this big game that we're playing here of of, of kind of uh, you know chasing the rabbit down the hole type of situation. So odd stuff here, odd stuff here. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you can't blame me, and I can't blame you for being a little bit skeptical of the whole situation because we've been we've had smoke blown up our asses for twenty years. And here we are. So just be on the lookout. Look at this with a very critical eye. And we will see what happens. All right, let's talk about guns. Biden announces six executive actions on guns, including ghost gun regulation and model red flag legislation. All right, President Joe Biden on Thursday unveiled six executive actions intended to address what his administration is calling the current gun violence public epidemic facing America, including among the actions were forthcoming regulations on so-called ghost guns and model red flag laws. The actions come nearly 80 days into Biden's presidency, despite the president's longstanding intent on to initiate gun reform and pressure from gun control advocates to enact measures to restrict firearm access earlier. In his rollout of the actions, the administration cited a spate of recent mass shootings as the impetus. Of course, he's talking about Boulder and Atlanta here. The first action directs the Department of Justice to issue a rule to help stop the proliferation of ghost guns within 30 days. So the ghost gun thing was really interesting. It's something I didn't know a ton about, even though I'm pretty familiar with firearms. Um, and I've heard this term thrown around, but didn't really know exactly what it was. So what they say is, we're experiencing a growing problem. Criminals are buying kits containing nearly all the components and directions for finishing a firearm within as uh, within little as 30 minutes and using these firearms to commit crimes. The news release stated, when these firearms turn up at crimes, they, are often, can, they often cannot be traced by law enforcement due to lack of a serial number. So I wanted to check this out more, and, and Wired actually did a really good video on this, and I wanted to play a little bit of it here. So he have what this guy considers a ghost gun, or what is considered a ghost gun. And we're going to go into exactly what that means, and I'll do a little bit more ex explanation because this guy is, is not familiar with ARs or guns in general. But he does find a way to put one of these together, and it really was quite fascinating to me. Because legally speaking, I didn't buy this gun. I made it. Anyone can buy every part of an AR-15 on the internet. There's one part, though, that you can't buy without a background check, and that is a functioning lower receiver, the body of the gun. What you can buy is this. 
This is not a lower receiver, although it looks a lot like one. To the government's, this is legally just a chunk of aluminum, but to any gunsmith, it's an 80% lower. That's a lower receiver that's basically 80% finished. All you have to do is remove a few cavities of aluminum from this, and you're left with a, a true functioning gun. For years. So I want to talk about this just briefly here. So the, the legal loophole here is that since the gun is not finished, not complete, it's really just a hunk of aluminum as that lower receiver. And if you're ever familiar with like ordering guns online, uh, you can order most parts for something like an AR um, or any other firearm for that matter online. But if you order the, the functioning lower receiver is what has a serial number on it and what requires a background check. So if you were to order one of those online, it would get shipped to a gun store. It would be checked into their inventory. And then you would go in and do your background check and do what's called an FFL transfer from that store. Now with this, this 80% lower is not actually a functioning lower receiver. So what you would have to do is finish that lower. And he's going to go through how he did that right here. DIY gun makers have been legally creating their own lower receivers to skirt gun control laws and build untraceable weapons. I wanted to see if new digital tools could make building one of these ghost guns easier for someone like me with little firearms or power tools experience. If I can legally make a semi-automatic rifle and circumvent all gun control, anyone can. So I tried making my AR-15 lower receiver three different ways. With a traditional drill press, with a 3D printer, and with a new computer-controlled milling machine called the Ghost Gunner. So first, I'm gonna try to do this the old-fashioned manual way. Wow, that is really not good. There's supposed to be a hole there. This guy clearly has no oh, idea how to work this a, is now a drill press. From this, and I didn't know <laughs> that wasn't supposed to happen. I've just made like a total mess of the inside of this thing. I don't think that this is a working firearm component by any means. So next, I used a MakerBot replicator and free plans I downloaded from the web to 3D print a plastic AR-15 lower receiver from scratch. The process was incredibly easy, but the results were somewhat flawed. I cut a finger trying to remove excess plastic. Finally, I tried what could be the future of homemade gunsmithing. The $1,500 Ghost Gunner is a computer-controlled milling machine. The latest invention of Defense Distributed, a controversial group known for releasing 3D printable blueprints for gun parts, including a fully 3D printable pistol. The Ghost Gunner doesn't print parts in plastic, though. It machines them out of aluminum. And it works on the same 80% lower as I tried with the drill press method, but requires far less equipment and skill. I can already tell it's a lot better at this than I am. As I watched the Ghost Gunner precisely carve away aluminum, it became clear that the barrier to legally obtaining a fully metal, untraceable, semi-automatic rifle is lower than ever before. This is the beautifully milled aluminum lower receiver for an AR-15 that we... Okay, so we'll cut that out there, but that gives you an idea of... And the reason I wanted to play this is because it, it goes to show kind of some of the myths, right? You're seeing people talking about printing out plastic uh, firearm components and using those. That's not going to function very well at all. Just the heat, it, it, it just doesn't add up. Um, and doing it yourself, as you can see with the drill press, or if you could hear there on the podcast, um, doesn't work well either. It's a really complicated process. But this this uh, this ghost gunner machine is like $1,500 or $2,000, right? Which is kind of the same price as any kind of quality AR-15 or AR-10 or anything like that in that same genre. Um, costs about the same thing, and you can get these. You can even make handguns with the damn thing. With online plans, you have to – I went to their website. You have to 
do a subscription thing and like it's pretty yeah it's kind of seedy kind of feels dark webby as far as how you would get this ghost gunner and you can just create your own firearms at home and the idea here i don't really feel like kind of the the pro gun right um, has a lot of ground to stand on because a, a firearm is not a fucking arts and craft project okay like it's a gun he's making a gun let's treat it like a fucking gun and at the same time, if you think about this, if you are a criminal enterprise and you would like to have guns without serial numbers on them, well, you can just invest a couple thousand dollars into this machine that machines guns for you that are great to use one time and throw away because they'll probably end up costing you like 100 or $150, right? Do what you need to do, get rid of them. That seems pretty problematic. That's something that we probably should do something about, right? Whether, it, whether it's here domestically where these things are being made legally or if they're getting shipped down to the cartels or something like that. Like this is this is not okay, right? And I'm I'm a I'm a second amendment advocate. This is not cool. All right? So being able to machine 20% of a lower that you got that was 80% finished with a machine that costs 1000 to $2000, right? If you can find them online, there's older models that are cheaper, the newer models are more expensive. Um, and more advanced and just basically just work faster. I think the newest model is, does like does it like 10 times faster. It's just a faster production. Um, that just seems a little sketchy to me. And the people that would be doing that seem a little sketchy to me, right? That's the people that couldn't pass a background check. Maybe they're felons, right? The people that you don't want to have guns can make it happen with something like this. That seems very problematic. I also want to bring up the red flag laws. Those are two of the big things here. The red flag laws basically give family members of, of someone who they feel to be unstable or unsafe, they can bar them temporarily from getting a firearm. I also don't see a whole lot of issues with that because a lot of firearm violence is done against other family members. I think that makes some sense. Now, can you just arbitrarily do it? I think you need to have some reason and some evidence, right? But, but behind someone's mental instability, or maybe they have threatened violence and you're kind of kind of preemptively turning them in or keeping them from doing something. Maybe you overheard them talking to someone on the phone about like shooting up a school or some shit. And maybe they don't, maybe you get in the way of that. You can, you can keep that person from obtaining a firearm legally uh, and kind of create a barrier to entry from creating violence. Don't see a huge issue with that. Now, one of the other things that we came up with here was the stabilizing braces. And this is the three big things. It was the red flag laws, the ghost guns, and the stabilizing braces. As much as I've been around firearms in my entire life, I didn't even know what a stabilizing brace was. I thought it was just a retractable stock on, a, on an AR-15, which is one that just slides in and out. It moves about three or four inches. Um, doesn't make that big of a difference as far as... It's more just like I think people slide it in to put it into a case or something like that. That's what I do. Um, but I just never really thought about like, what is this for? And essentially it's strapping the, 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 the brace of the AR onto your arm. And if you don't know, there's AR rifles, which are over 16 inches or over on the barrel. And there's AR pistols, which can go down to like eight inches. Um, really small. It's an AR upper and lower with a very short barrel which can be very problematic. And if you use one of these stabilizing braces where it straps onto your arm, it makes it much more accurate. And if you're using some kind of laser optic, like a red dot scope, well, then it becomes, it can become very, very deadly and much more accurate than like a traditional handgun with that stabilizing brace. I don't know who in the fuck uses one of these things. I guess they've been used in, used in, in mass shootings or whatever, a handful of times. I've never seen one be used functionally. 
in the tactical shooter friends that I have. I've just, I actually have one on an AR, and I didn't even know that it, what it was. It just, to me, was, was a brace. It wasn't anything different, but I guess if you unwrap the Velcro and like strap it to your arm, it becomes a different thing, which to me was so odd and so silly. And you're going to hear people say, like, well, this is for home defense. If someone's breaking into your house, I think the last thing you're concerned about is strapping an AR to your arm. It doesn't even seem like a good move. It limits your mobility in the way that you can even function the damn thing. So the whole stabilizing brace argument is really silly. So we're looking at the big things that were kind of highlighted in this firearms executive order situation. And what it looks like to me is that Biden was doing something to satisfy the people that are left of him, right? So the, the, the anti-gun left, he wanted to get something happening because he had promised to do something. This isn't an assault weapons ban. This isn't anything even crazy at all. This seems pretty standard. Um, and does none of it that I see is very problematic at all. Now, people will say it's a slippery slope and whatever, but to me, if using like a stabilizing brace and strapping an AR to your arm, like grow the fuck up and shoot it like an adult. Like that's just so silly to me. It's like, a, it's just, it's just so, so silly to me that you feel like you need that functionality. Um, like train, how about you train? Like an AR code doesn't have very much recoil at all. So it, it actually has kind of negative recoil. It just pops a little bit. So you're going to sit here and say that you, you, you need a stabilizing brace strapped to your forearm to be effective. That means you're not good with a firearm. That means you need to go hire somebody, go do sheepdog tactical with Tim Kennedy, if you're that concerned. So what this looks like to me is, is placating to the left a little bit, the anti-gun left, giving them, you know, throwing them a bone while making no real substantive changes, pretty much common sense stuff that I think if we were to poll the America on, if they were informing these issues would probably be pretty popular. So we're seeing a lot of like song and dance and people are getting excited about this and talking about, you know, infringement on second amendment. I don't see that much here. Now, there are some bills that have been proposed that are a very clear infringement on the Second Amendment. And I think if you're part of the pro-Second Amendment group, be satisfied that this is the bone he's throwing to the left and hope that it stops here because this is not that much, not that big of a deal. If you're not, if you're not manufacturing <laughs> ARs without a serial number or handguns without a serial number in your basement, and selling them to people that can't pass a background check, this shouldn't concern you that much. And if you really are that attached to your stabilizing brace, I don't really know what to tell you. And if you don't think that a woman who's been, you know, had domestic violence in her home should be able to go and say, hey, this guy doesn't really need a gun, well, maybe you need to reevaluate yourself a little bit. And if this goes over the top and some of these red flag um, laws go too far. Like we'll have that discussion when we get there, but I don't foresee that being that big of an issue. So we're seeing a lot to do about nothing here. To me, I think this just isn't that big of a problem. I don't think it's an infringement and I don't see anything in this that jumps out at me as being like really problematic. Like if you think that somebody should be able to, to create an arts and crafts, um, unlicensed firearm in their basement and just sell it to whoever legally, we're not on the same page at all, at all. And I understand that you may be like a libertarian and freedom and government, yada, yada, yada. I understand. But at the end of the day, we have a world where, and, and to be honest with you, with this whole ghost gun thing, I'm more concerned about handguns than I am about ARs. They are, and I'm going to put that out there and be very open about that. They're the bigger problem. They make up 80 to 90% of gun violence. It's a big deal. So let's keep that in mind as well, that these ghost guns are, 
these ghost gun machines can make handguns. Okay, so that's part of the deal too. And all you have to do is download the information online and plug it into your machine and get yourself a, an 80% complete weapon and boom, you're good to go. And that just seems that just seems a little much for me. Like I, I don't mind passing the background check. Sometimes they're annoying because they can take a couple days, but I think all things considered, <laughs> it's necessary. And Coleon Noor can argue with me about that, I guess, if we need to have that conversation. I'm more than willing to. But I don't see anything here that's that big of a deal. And I wanted to bring it up because we have talked about firearms on this episode, on this podcast a lot. And it's something that is very important to me. But I don't see something here that really jumps out at me. Well, court packing has been a hot topic lately, so let's dive into it. We got this article from The Guardian here saying that Biden orders commission to study Supreme Court expansion and reform. Joe Biden on Friday ordered a study of adding seats to the Supreme Court, creating a bipartisan 36-member commission that will spend the next six months examining the political uh, incendiary issues of expanding the court and instituting term limits for its justices. The executive order fulfills a campaign promise to examine court reform, including expanding the number of justices or setting term limits amid growing calls from progressive activists to realign Supreme Court the, the Supreme Court after its composition tilted sharply to the right during Donald Trump's presidency. Biden has not said whether he supports expanding the court, also known as court packing. Uh, Trump appointed three justices to the high court, one seat that Republicans had blocked um, had blocked Trump's predecessor, Barack Obama, from filling, despite arguing in 2016 that the sheet should be filled by the winner of this year's presidential election. Republicans rushed to fill the Supreme Court seat vacated by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg weeks before the 2020 election. All right. So what we have here is a bipartisan commission looking at expanding the court. And I'm going to do a little both sidesism here and maybe upset some conservatives. The conservatives, the Republicans brought this shit on themselves. Mitch McConnell is as responsible for this as anyone else. Okay? Obama had, as a part of his duties, he had a duty, an obligation to appoint judges. Okay? Supreme Court and otherwise. McConnell, being the scumbag that he is, blocked that not only from the Supreme Court with Merrick Garland, but over 100 seats in lower courts. That were vacant, and then Trump tried to make it out as if Obama like just forgot that those those seats were there, which was the silliest shit ever, and such a such a douchey thing to do. So, you have Mitch McConnell blocking all these seats. You have the clear hypocrisy in them not wanting to even give Merrick Garland a shot to be confirmed because they thought that they, the the winner of the election should be the person to to appoint the next justice, and then doing the complete opposite four years later. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Okay. So we have this situation where the Republicans have played fucking, you know, Pong with the court and tilted it hard to the right, which is supposed to be a bipartisan organization. And you expect the left. We'll just call them the Democrats. They're not actually the left. Well, you expect the Democrats to just take that and not do the opposite when they have leverage. This is short-sighted politics playing out. The conservatives fucked up here. They blew it. And they did not think they were going to reap what they sowed here. And they don't want to take any responsibility for their hypocrisy or their lies or their injustice. They're interfering with the president's responsibilities. 
Because if they would have just let Obama do his job and appoint the justices and appoint the judges that were his right and not interfered, well, then you wouldn't have this situation right now. But when you start getting in the way and playing bullshit politics, this is what happens. It's a cause and effect situation. This is always going to happen. The the Democrats do the same shit. They don't expect things to come back around. They always come back around. That's part of the system. That's why we have term limits for the president. That's That's why we have elections every two and four years. Because if things aren't working, we go the other way. And you're likely to see that in two years at the midterms when you see something something like a red wave. Highly likely. So to think that the Republicans do not have some liability in this whole situation would be so naive and so short-sighted. You've got to look back and see what brought this on. And what brought this on was Mitch McConnell, a fucking bad faith actor obstructing the president of the United States from doing his responsibility and then leveraging the clown that they had in office to tilt the courts, a supposedly nonpartisan organization, hard right. Without term limits, you're just waiting around for people to die. And everybody they appointed was younger, so we have 40, you know, two generations pretty much that are going to be that are going to be dealt with by these justices. It doesn't seem that doesn't seem right to me. And I think there's ways to rework this. I think that Supreme Court reform is a really good idea. I don't like the idea of just waiting around for people to die. I think term limits, even though they will be very long, I think term limits are a good idea. Maybe it's 30 years, 35 years, 40 years. I don't know. But I think term limits are a good idea. I also think if we look at reforming this, there's a way that we can go about doing it where the, a president only has so many appointments that he can make within one term. I think if you have, and of course, these people have to be confirmed, right? So there has to be, go through, there's a confirmation process. So if we did something where a president can only appoint two justices within a term, the third one is appointed by the opposing party, pending confirmation, that maintains the nonpartisanship or the bipartisanship at least of these, of these institutions. So if you limit it to two, the third one, if there is a third seat opened up within a term, Goes to the other party, pins confirmation. Of course, if if there's whatever party's in the White House, probably has some leverage depending on the time in the in the cycle. Um, probably has some leverage within this within the uh, within Congress. So we can see all that kind of play out, where that would be a much more balanced situation than what we have now. Whereas if if <laughs> all the Supreme Court justices just all of a sudden die in some kind of plane crash or some weird accident, or they all get COVID and die, well then Biden gets to pick all of them, all nine of them. That's just a weird situation for me. We got to think about things like that. It's like, let's keep this, this one part of our government that's supposed to be nonpartisan. Let's do our best to keep it nonpartisan. And to think that there wasn't going to be some research into expanding the court and at least playing that for leverage, even if they don't do it, they cannot do the thing, but still leverage the fact that they might do it if Republicans don't play ball with some legislation that they want. That's politics, right? So now what they're doing is getting enough backing for their leverage. Even if they don't pull the trigger, they still have the leverage, which is good politics. It's how you have to play in this in this hyper-partisan arena that we have created for ourselves here. So I put a lot of the fault of this on the Republicans. 
I don't think reform would be a bad idea. I'd be curious to see where it goes. Given that Biden is kind of a centrist and kind of a neo neoliberal, it probably wouldn't be terrible. It wouldn't be. It's not going to be some egregious like far left thing that everybody's going to paint it as. But we'll see. I mean, it's been at nine since the Civil War, and maybe it is time for a change. It'd be interesting to see. But when you when you completely swing it in one direction, it's inevitably going to swing back the other direction. And this short-sighted politics is a huge part of the problem. And the Republicans had to know this was going to happen. Of course, they didn't think that COVID was going to happen. And if COVID wouldn't have happened, then Trump would, have been, would be in his second term right now. But it did, and here we are. And it, it's just short-sighted. It's a short-sighted situation. Mitch McConnell, and I've, I've said this over and over again, Mitch McConnell is worse than Trump. He's more damaging He's more unjust. He's a fucking scumbag. So when we look at this thing, we have to think about both sides, their responsibility, the accountability, where it goes, and how short-sighted politics have have created even more of a of a of a hyperpartisan situation. We don't play the long game here. And that makes it really hard for anybody to make appropriate decisions because Everybody wants everything now, and we can't be patient. We can't let things play out. We've seen of, of, of devaluing of due process. It's weird. It's weird, but you have people from the left saying something like this. Let's get down here. With five justices appointed by presidents who lost the popular vote, which means conservatives, it's crucial that we consider every option for wrestling back political control of the Supreme Court, says Nan Aaron president of the Alliance for Justice, a liberal judicial advocacy group. So wrestle back control of the Supreme Court. That's the language you think is going to be productive here. That's not the rhetoric that is going to move this thing forward. That rhetoric is part of the fucking problem. And we're seeing this over and over again. We need control of it. We, and what if the conservatives did the same thing whenever they're in power again, which will not be very far from now? I don't understand, and there's like such a lack of empathy or understanding that, like, hey, that's going to turn around and bite you in the ass, just like it did for conservatives. If you overreach here, if the Democrats overreach here, it will come back to bite them in the ass. And they got to be mindful of that. And that's something that it seems like Joe Biden is actually pretty mindful of, given all of his faults. Twitter bans Veritas founder James O'Keefe, and he threatens a lawsuit. Twitter is at it again, everybody. They banned Trump. They've been banning lots of right-wing people, but lots of left-wing people, too. Depends on how far you go. If you're far right, you're fucked. If you're far left, you might be fucked. This is a crazy situation that we have here. So Twitter permanently bans Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe on Thursday, accusing the controversial right-wing personality of violating the social network's spam and platform manipulation rules. But O'Keefe says he plans on suing Twitter in response. O'Keefe's suspension is permanent, a Twitter spokesperson told Forbes. The spokesperson cited Twitter's platform manipulation and spam rules, which prohibit users from running fake accounts and using multiple accounts to artificially amplify or disrupt conversations, though the company did not point to a specific infraction. O'Keefe told Forbes in a statement he plans to be suing Twitter um, for defamation next week, denying that he ever operated fake accounts. I don't deny, like, O'Keefe is a kind of a sketchy character, 
he put some good stuff out there. I wish he would. I, I would really appreciate it if Prospect Veritas was a uh, nonpartisan or organization, but they are hitched. They, and that's why I call them a propaganda network, right? They've hitched themselves to Trump. They have allegiance to him and his ideology, and that is what they operate from. To me, that identifies them as a propaganda network in the same way that CNN, who they just exposed for being propaganda, is also a propaganda network. Now, if Veritas attacked the left and the right equally, well, that would be great. I would love that. He would use his resources and his abilities to do that. That'd be really interesting. He'd probably still be taken off Twitter because... If you go too far on the fringes of the left, you're just as fucked as anybody on the right. But when you look at this whole thing, he's, you know, he's going to sue them. We'll see what happens. It's unlikely that he will win this defamation suit. It's hard to, it's hard to win a defamation suit when you're a public figure like this. And I don't doubt that they were operating some fake accounts or that fake accounts were very useful in amplifying the message they got out there. I don't think they needed them for the CNN expose, especially uh, that went hard anyways. I mean, lots of people, I think I retweeted that it's, it's, it was an interesting story. It wasn't surprising, but it was, it was there and it was true and it was real. Um, so, I don't understand what the grounds are here. I think that Twitter is overreaching. I think they were overreaching when they banned the president of the United States or the former president of the United States. It is kind of nice not to deal with Trump tweets. I have to be honest with you, but I don't think that it's right. And the same thing happened when uh, I think Charlie Kirk got suspended from his account. And everybody who knows me on this show like knows that I don't like Charlie Kirk. Charlie Kirk is kind of the antithesis of me. He is as far away from me as you can possibly get as far as personality, uh, belief systems, um, way of handling himself. Like <laughs> all of these things <laughs> are, are, I find, problematic. But I still defend the guy's right to speak. Would he do the same for me? I don't know. That's yet to be seen. But I defend the guy's right to speak in the same way that I do with James O'Keefe, especially whenever he's sharing stuff that is is important. It's important to see people from to see it come from the a person's mouth at CNN that they are fucking lying to people. Now, of course, I know that, and many people that I surround myself know know that. And if you're listening to this show, you probably know that. But that doesn't mean that the world at large knows that, and it's important to see and experience that reality. And I don't understand why Twitter thinks it's their responsibility to jump in and do this. It's like they're begging to be controlled in some other way. They're begging for a re- repeal of 230, right? Which, which makes them, it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like, what is the problem? What is the fucking problem? Who is crying about this? Who is so butthurt by people like James O'Keefe? Like, disagree with them if you want. Disagree with them on the platform. Expose them. Do the same thing that they do to other companies and other organizations to them if, you, if you're that concerned about it. Get one of their people on a, on a Tinder date and get them talking. You know? Like, why is, is, that, why is that not... Why is complaining and censoring our go-to? Like, we've nerfed society so much. And the first episode of this show ever was called We're Too Soft. And I stand by that more and more every day. We have a soft nation. It's like we can't handle the truth. We can't handle, we can't handle people saying that, hey, if you're obese and you get COVID, you're fucked. Maybe do something about it. No, we can't do that. We got to be sensitive around everybody's feelings, even though it were lying in the process. And there's maybe a place to do that with children of a certain age. But are we all children of a certain age here? Are we three-year-old kids that need to think that fucking Santa is real? Like, give it to me straight. Like, what's really going on here? Because this isn't making a ton of sense. 
when you got somebody that I don't like defending these people. <laughs> like it doesn't make it doesn't bring me joy to defend James O'Keefe. I don't like James O'Keefe. I don't like Project Veritas. But I'm glad they do some of the stuff they do, even though they edit things in a very specific way, and they may pay people here and there to like get what they need out. And they were their allegiance to stop the steal was short sighted and, and and ignorant. But who fucking at the end of the day, who fucking cares? That's the deal with me. It's like who gives a shit? That's the libertarian in me coming out. That's just saying like I can't, I can't find a fuck to give. And some people are just outraged, outraged at their ideology being attacked, at their institutions being attacked. When at the end of the day, no matter which direction it's coming from, it makes us stronger as individuals and as a community and as a culture, as a nation, it makes us stronger to see the dirty underbelly and acknowledge it and accept responsibility for failures and, and, and understand what's there and snap the fuck out of it. It's the same thing as a toxic relationship. You need to see that you're being manipulated. You need to see the gaslighting. You need to see how you're being taken advantage of. And it's not fun to confront those things. It's not fun to, it's not fun to confront those feelings. It's not fun to feel that you're wrong and that you have been wrong. And that your ideas maybe weren't as good as you thought they were. But that's also part of growing the fuck up. Which people in our culture today seem to be so scared of. Like, I'm a man-child, okay? I get that. Like, I wear a hoodie and a backwards hat for the show every day. That's my fucking uniform. I don't put on a suit and a tie. I like to play. I spend a lot of time in the woods. I love driving in four-wheel drive, even when it's unnecessary, <laughs> okay? Like, I'm a man-child, but at least I can deal with the fact that, like, some things that I think aren't the best ideas in the world. And that's why people listen to this show. Because I don't, I don't have this, uh, this, this, politics aren't an ideology to me. It's a human behavior experiment. And the experiment is getting really fucking wacky right now. And the results are astonishing. And what it seems to say to me is that as a nation, as a culture, as, 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 as people, we've chosen, we've sacrificed growth and understanding and honesty for comfort and safety and feel good feelsies, which is just a fucking travesty, man. We're just weak people. It, to the point where where someone who's like moderately resilient it, it can be held up as some kind of like self-help guru with just base level understanding of like human development <laughs> that's the world we live in and this further perpetuated by acts like this of banning someone off twitter who just is kind of a you know a right-wing scumbag but at the end of the day who fucking cares cuz there's left-wing scumbags too I can't say what he does is any less propagandistic than Sean King, but he's not being censored on Twitter. Do you think that, like, CNN and MSNBC lied about Russiagate for years and are still hitched to that horse? For what? Lied to you for years. Years. The Russian bounties. That just came out to be a fucking pile of bullshit. Is anybody paying a price for that? Is anybody getting censored off Twitter for lying about Russian bounties? No, I'm not seeing any of that anywhere. But on the heels of exposing CNN for a very obvious, <laughs> a very obvious allegiance to an ideology, 
He's getting pulled down. We are a weak people. We are weak people. Don't compare yourself to the norm anymore. There used to be something you could do is like, okay, here's what like normal commitment discipline looks like. And I can kind of measure myself against that. If you measure yourself against the norm now, you're still a pussy. Like find a different, find the different measuring stick to measure yourself against when it comes to how you operate yourself in the world. Because what we're dealing with now is so fucked. Florida anti-riot bill goes to governor amid racial strife. All right, let's check this out. This is a nice, here's a nice uh, image of a mostly peaceful protest right here. Uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Florida's Republican-controlled legislator approved stiffer penalties against violent protesters on Thursday, handing a major legislative victory to Governor Ron DeSantis, who began campaigning for the measure last year following the summer of turmoil across the country over killings of black people by police. A divided Florida Senate approved a so-called so-called anti-riot bill as the trial of a Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is underway for the death of George Floyd, a black man whose death under Chauvin's knee triggered waves of protests. It's an understatement. Um, the measure was sent to Florida's Republican governor as new protests erupted this week in a Minneapolis suburb after another another fatal police shooting of a black man. Okay, so we're going to cover this briefly here. This is not surprising at all because we've seen, again, and I think the media has a big part to play in this. We got to keep that in mind because we had things like buildings burning down and cars being flipped over and, the, and calling them most, mostly peaceful protests. Well, I mean, the Manson family was mostly peaceful too, right? Mostly peaceful doesn't mean a goddamn thing. It means literally nothing. Like wars are mostly peaceful. Like what is that even? That, that's, that's a non-statement, okay? So when we look at this whole thing, it was inevitable that this was going to happen. But I think that there's a, there's a few things that kind of scare me about this. One, it can be weaponized very easily depending on who the party in power is. So this could be weaponized against right-wing people um, in anti-mask demonstrations or you know BLM-style uh, protest situations. And both of those can get out of, out of control, but we, can know, we know that one tends to do things a little bit more aggressively than the other. Um, so when we look at the situation here, we, we've got to think – all right, like who can be caught in the crossfire of this? Because that's something we need, we need to be really mindful of because there are going to be agitators that are out turning over cars, setting stuff on fire, but there's also mixed in with that, and this is where the mostly peaceful part comes in, I guess, is that mostly those most of those people are there uh, peacefully protesting. Now, rioters, looters, there's already laws in place for breaking and entering, theft, uh, vandalizing property, things like that. So I don't know why those aren't good enough, but I think one of the things that, that popped up in this that I thought was actually a good idea was being able to detain people who were arrested during uh, during riots um, to their court date. So they would be kept locked up in the meantime, which seems in that situation, given that these like unruly crowds go crazy, um, that could make some sense. I just am scared that like the way that modern policing is that just swaths of people will be arrested and there needs to be very clear cut lines on who is doing what. And there needs to be proof. And, and we got to have like some real strict boundaries on how far this can go because you're towing the line of, uh, with being unconstitutional here, right? Like if somebody, if one person or 10 people out of a thousand do something uh, violent, how many people are going to, if and 50 people get arrested and are there just for a week waiting for a court date, like that's not, that's unconstitutional. 
right? Because the actions of few don't necessarily need to be projected on onto the to the convictions of many here. So we got to be really mindful about where this can go. Now that being said, somebody said this today. I, I think it was on Rising or something like that. But I was I was I heard that Ron DeSantis is Trump, but he's nice. And I thought about that, and I was like, ooh, because I, I feel like Ron DeSantis is teeing himself up to be the, the nominee for the Republicans, if not in 2024, then in 2028, depending on how things look. And he's actually somebody I could see myself voting for because he seems to call bullshit where bullshit is necessary, but doesn't do it like a clown and an asshole like Trump did. He does it in, in a way that is entertaining in a way, but it's also he earned his stripes as a politician. Right, so he's he's been a governor. He's shown how he leads, and Florida has shown us all over the over COVID how how mindless we can be, because they seem to be doing fine, and they're having a lot more fun down there living normal lives than most of us are in places like Colorado, which used to be a free state. I don't know what's going on now, but things have changed quite a bit. Texas and Florida have shown the rest of the country how stupid we're being about this whole thing, and that's going to pay dividends down the road. So. This is towing the line for sure, and we'll see how it goes because there will be more protests. Inevitably, something's going to happen. It's too beneficial for something not to be turned into outrage. So both sides benefit from outrage. So we need to keep that in mind, right? Because if you have riots and and, and violence, then it, it makes conservatives and Republicans seem more necessary because they tend to be the law and order um, party. Right. And then if you have some kind of, you know, more racial division that benefits the liberals because they're the party of justice. So when we look at this whole thing, you have to be really mindful of that. They are towing a line here, but it's also unsurprising. Right. I haven't seen this in action, so I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't trust police officers any more than I trust anybody else to do things appropriately, especially when protests are anti-police in the way that they're conducting themselves. So if, if you give them an inch, they might take a mile. And that scares me because police overreach and things like drug laws are worthwhile things to protest. And I will die on that hill if I need to. I am not a defund the police person, but I am a police reform advocate. And I have been since way before it was cool. So... When you look at this this thing, we got to be really, really. I don't keep saying this, but we got to be really mindful about how we celebrate or view this because this could be weaponized against the people that we support and against us down the road. Now, I'm not in Florida. This is a Florida thing, but we just need to be. I think this is this is very much targeted in one direction, and rightfully so, because the left has acted like complete fools in the way that they've protested um, over the last year. And I've been to some of these protests. The ones I went to were peaceful, but I've also seen the Capitol here in Denver be spray-painted and busted to shit. I wasn't a part of that. I didn't see any of that. But it's wild. And there needs to be punishment for those kind of things. There needs to be punishment for that vandalism. If, if, if you know a GameStop is getting looted twice in one year, there's a problem. And those business owners, those people that work there, are the ones being punished. Not the patriarchy or whatever the fuck people think that they're doing. And it's not, it, let's be real, it's not about that. It's stealing sneakers has nothing to do with, with police violence, right? Stealing video games has nothing to do with police violence. So there needs, to be, there needs to be something done here. And I think that's actually a pretty popular position, especially among people who, are, who have been impacted by these riots and out-of-control protests. Um, so 
not a surprise, feels like a good move, but also feels like you're walking into dangerous territory, especially for somebody like DeSantis, who is likely to be a Republican nominee for president in the near future. And I think actually even going through a primary would win against Trump. If you if he, if Trump decides to run again in 2024, I think DeSantis could beat him in a primary due, due to the fact that their policy is very similar, but their demeanor and the, the the level of respect among other politicians and and just people in general, it leans in in DeSantis's favor. So interesting stuff here. We'll see how it turns out. Something was going to be done like this, and it seems like DeSantis is willing to put his you know put himself out there, um, and we'll see how it goes. New poll shows Matthew McConaughey crushing current Texas governor in race for highest state office. This is absolutely incredible. So we have Matthew McConaughey toying with the idea, toying with the idea of running for the governor of Texas. And let me just tell you, as someone who lived in Austin for 10 years, who loves Texas, that Matthew McConaughey is Austin. Matthew McConaughey is is the essence of of Texas and all of the things that it is about. It is so amazing. And he's, he's spoken out about people like not bringing California politics to Texas, which I think really set people off in, in a good way. Um, his new book is apparently really, really good. He's been out there and more and more, and he's toying with this idea. And I, I love this. I absolutely love this. Let's just look at the numbers really quick. Cause this is kind of astonishing. Um, along party lines, 56% of Republicans said they'd vote for Abbott compared to just 30% for McConaughey, while 66% of Democrats said they'd vote for the actor compared to 8% for Abbott. Among independent voters, 44% said they would support him over Abbott, while 29% threw their support behind the current governor. So we have 44% of independents, 66% of Democrats, and 30% of Republicans. That's pretty. I don't know of any other candidate who's going to get that kind of support um, from a bipartisan slash nonpartisan consensus. This is really interesting, and and he's polling at forty five percent right now, whereas Greg Abbott, the current governor, is at thirty three percent. And Greg Abbott's done a pretty good job with COVID and things like that, getting the vaccine, being one of the first to repeal the mask mandates. So that's been he's, he's gained some favor there. But the Texas storms um, did him kind of dirty. And the way his rhetoric around the Texas storms that caused a lot of death and destruction in Texas uh, did not do him any favors at all. So let's just think about what it would be like for dazed and confused actor Matthew McConaughey. Um, and God, isn't he just so good in Dallas Buyers Club? Isn't he just so good? Like, it's absurd. He's, a, he's fantastic. And this dude will walk in to a classy restaurant bar in Austin with three beers left in a six-pack of Bud Light, or, or I think he actually drinks, um, what does he carry around? Somebody's going to be thinking this right now, and I can't think of it. Uh, Shiner, I think. Anyways, he'll walk in with, with three beers left in a six-pack with no shoes on into a fancy restaurant with his shirt unbuttoned, and that's Matthew McConaughey. And there's nobody else that I can see sitting in the governor's mansion um, more than McConaughey. Like, I don't know if he'll actually run. I don't know what he'll actually do. But this guy is just, he just sums up Texas. And you got to think with an actor like that, he would be appointing the people around him that would be doing most of the work and he'd be more of a, a spokesperson for Texas, which I think is also great. But I like that he's kind of a Democrat. He's kind of a liberal. He's kind of politically homeless. If you really look at the way that he conducts himself, which I think is absolutely rad. And with so many people people from California who have had Arnold Schwarzenegger as a governor moving to Texas, and I think most people that, that I know from California who have moved to Texas are more independent-minded than they are uh, partisan Democrat-Republican. So 
getting a lot of independent support is going to become more and more valuable in Texas. I don't think it's going to swing it blue necessarily unless a Democrat candidate can come up and have some pragmatic ideas. I do think that Texas is going to be very um, harsh on Democrats trying to run in that state because of their conservative leanings. And that's what's made Texas the state that it is. You know, so I think this could be amazing. Like I said, I don't know if he'll run, if he'll actually run, if he'll actually pull the trigger. He's apparently considering it. But I do know one thing. It'd be a whole lot cooler if you did, man. We're going to cover this just briefly. Maxine Waters says to BLM, we need to be more confrontational. We cannot go away without a Chauvin guilty verdict. So I'm not going to play this because the audio is shit and we've seen this everywhere. This isn't, this isn't even going to make it to Instagram. I just wanted to cover this with you guys here. Um, so you have Maxine Waters. She goes to Minneapolis. She's from California. Says that people need to get more confrontational. Stay in the streets unless there's a guilty verdict, which we just found out today there is a guilty verdict. I, I'm curious to see if there's still going to be some like celebratory rioting or something like that. I don't know. We'll see what goes on. But just imagine if... Ted Cruz did this, if Donald Trump did this, if Donald Trump Jr. did this, if Ron DeSantis did this, if Matt Gates before he was doing whatever he's doing now did this, if Josh Hawley did this, if a conservative did this, it would be a completely different situation. It would be fucking pandemonium. Liberals would lose their minds. And this woman can walk around with impunity and say, get more confrontational when people who have owned businesses have seen them burned to the ground. Small businesses, not Target and other shit like that, even though those people do employ lots of people that need that business to operate for their well-being. But small business owners getting looted, watching their buildings burn, watching everything they've worked for be destroyed, having insurance be insufficient to be able to get them back on their feet. And this woman's going to go out here and say, be more confrontational. Is that what Martin Luther King would have said? Is that, what, is, that, is that the sentiment of Martin Luther King? To be more confrontational. Maybe be more uh, resilient. Maybe hold out. Maybe stay strong. But it's not be more confrontational. That only pushes people away from your cause. And I wanted to cover that just briefly and just put the contrast, put the thought in your mind. What if a conservative did this? What would the action look like? What, what would the response be like? How many things would they say? How long would we have to hear about it on CNN and MSNBC? People would lose their shit. And that is not a fair expression of values. And I think it's worth noting. Toxic masculinity is going to kill you, says MSNBC. COVID vaccine hesitancy among men is its own public health issue. A study says vaccine hesitancy among men is a potentially fatal consequence of toxic masculinity. So now it's toxic masculinity is the problem when it comes to getting the COVID vaccine. Let's see where this goes from Liz Plank, MSNBC opinion columnist. Last month, President Joe Biden dismissed the decision by governors in states including Texas and Mississippi to end mask mandates as Neanderthal thinking. 
Whether he knew it or not, Biden was pointing to a specific and revelatory trend in how some people are interacting with pandemic restrictions because Neanderthal thinking might be the best way to describe the apparent aversion to masks, health restrictions, and vaccines that certain men are exhibiting, according to a Farley Dickinson University poll of more than 6,000 adults across all 50 states. Neanderthal is a term we often jokingly use to describe people, men normally, who act out destructive biological impulses without much thought like the primitive Ice Age humans we learned about in school. It's also used to jokingly connote rugged manliness. That is not a very polite way to think about your ancestors, my friends. They were very intelligent beings. Uh, While studies earlier in the pandemic pointed to the way unhealthy behaviors like resistance to masks and hand washing were more common in men in general, this data makes an important distinction. The problem isn't men, it's the men committed to a certain performance of masculinity. The problem isn't men, it's the men committed to a certain performance of masculinity. That's a real thing that someone wrote down and published thinking it was worth saying. Men are more skeptical than women about COVID-19 vaccines and wearing face masks, but the real divide is between men who are trying to project masculinity and the men who aren't. Farley Dickinson researchers wrote, Men who assert a traditionally masculine gender identity are less likely to say they'll get the COVID-19 vaccine, more likely to say that it has side effects, and more resistant to wearing face masks for protection, and more likely to say they have been diagnosed with COVID-19. The survey also found that men who identify as completely masculine are nearly twice as likely to say wearing a mask is dangerous to the health of the wearer and are predictably more than three times likely to report having been infected with the virus. I want to put this out there just so you know. Masculine men don't feel the need to identify as completely masculine. So anybody who's identifying, self-identifying as completely masculine likely is compensating for not feeling completely masculine. Just putting that out there. The men who identify as the most masculine were also more likely to have attended a gathering of more than 10 people or hosted visitors at the residence during the pandemic. (laughs) Almost half of completely masculine men reported they've they've had people over to their house recently. Uh, For other men, it was 36%. So it's the difference in 43% and 36%? That makes no sense. While we know COVID-19 is a major health threat here, it appears our defunct definition of masculinity is a dangerous precondition for COVID-19 that we should be talking about. I think obesity is a, is a more important topic to talk about when we talk about preconditions for COVID-19, not masculinity. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Many healthcare providers uh, believe men aren't biologically predetermined to partake in poor health behaviors that harm themselves and others, but the medical system overall can itself help perpetuate dangerous, in this case potentially fatal, concepts of masculinity. The HIV AIDS crisis is a heartbreaking example of this. In 2019, Michael Sidibwe then the executive director of UNAIDS said in a statement that there's a blind spot for men and they, men are not using services to prevent HIV or to test for HIV and are not assess, accessing treatment on the scale that women are. Because HIV and AIDS diagnosis is often perceived as being effeminate, men are reportedly less likely to get tested and treated. According to a 2015 report, a stunning 70% of men who died from the AIDS-related illness in South Africa never sought treatment. 
So we're now correlating COVID-19 in the United States with the AIDS epidemic or pandemic, whatever you want to call it, in Africa. Does that does those same things seem to correlate? Does that there's a pretty seems to be a pretty big gap there in the way that we're discussing AIDS versus COVID. Let's get real here. AIDS in Africa, COVID in the United States. Show me the similarities besides this. Because most people, many people that I see not wanting to get the vaccine are women. And that's probably because the side effects of the vaccine disproportionately affect women. Oh, Okay, we go on here. It says, to fix it, some healthcare providers say we need to talk about it. Some providers say we, we see, they want to see public health slogans evolve to address these dangerous gendered expectations we have of men. Jesus Christ. The problem is, for reasons not completely understood, male sex is a very real risk factor, and I think messaging should include it more, says Dr. Darian Sutton, an emergency physician, told me. Um, unfortunately, in many ways, it feels that masculinity and vulnerability have, have to be mutually exclusive, and it results in many feeling that they have to compromise their use of one of the best methods of protection. What? Okay, Sutton believes that although new conversations about vulnerability have been central theme of the pandemic, there haven't been there hasn't been a concerted effort to make space for men who are discouraged from expressing it. <sighs> While we knew the support for the vaccine followed partisan lines, with Republican men reportedly leaning most anti-vaccine, the Farley Dickinson uh, survey gives us a glimpse into how men's relationship with their masculinity isn't uniform or fossilized rather that all like all gender identity it's evolving which also means it can be changed it can be changed okay it might be time to start complicating the way we talk about men and let go of the myth that men's behaviors are determined by biology rather than how they perceive themselves meanwhile reports indicate we're on the precipice of a possible fourth surge of COVID-19 with a spike in hospitalizations across 25 states. Maintaining smart preventative habits like masks and limiting indoor gatherings is more important than ever. No, it's fucking not. No, it's not. Maintaining smart preventative habits like masks and limiting indoor gatherings is more important than ever is a false statement. Oh, especially as especially as deadlier and more infectious COVID-19 variants spread, we can't afford to let things like toxic masculinity continue to affect us. What in the actual fuck? I feel personally attacked here. This is absolutely insane. We also can't afford to ignore the fact that when it comes to COVID-19, at least a man's perception of his gender seems to be a better predictor of his choices than his actual gender. Men are not a monolith. In fact, the stark gender differences with men and women's behaviors when it comes to the to health fade away with men who have a more flexible definition of masculinity. Gender is most often discussed as a women's issue, but men have a complex gender identity too. It's not too late for COVID-19 vaccine public messaging and all of us to start acknowledging it. This is the most ridiculous shit I've ever seen in my life. Not only does this article contradict itself like five or six times, Right. It's like, well, men are correlating a different way based on the way they see themselves. Like there's so many reaches here in the way that this person goes about writing this article. And the fact that it even gets published on MSNBC is just so comical. Like MSNBC has become a satire of itself. Like this is, this is what, what even is this? 
So what about all the women who don't want to get the vaccine, right, that aren't Republicans? This isn't a partisan thing. This isn't a gender thing. This isn't a toxic masculinity thing. This is about how people view their own personal health. And yes, men that would rate themselves as completely masculine also probably take personal responsibility and work manual labor jobs, right? Like that's one of the things they value is personal sovereignty across the board. Now, if you looked at other correlates outside of the COVID-19 vaccine, you might find some other data. But if you're just narrowly putting a narrow focus on the COVID-19 vaccine, which you can also be anti-COVID-19 vaccine and not anti-vax, by the way. Don't correlate those two things together because all that's doing is putting more people in an anti-vax camp, which don't belong there. So we have this non-starter that's turned into something out of nothing, and now we have to believe that if you now the, the narrative will become real men get vaxxed, real men get the vaccine. That'll be that will be a slogan somewhere. Mark my words. With all this coming out, and and to, the, for anybody who's hesitant, that's on the left and doesn't want to get described as as toxically masculine, it's just more fear into compliance in a very subtle way for a very specific part of the population. This is cowardice bullshit. This is propaganda. That's exactly what this is. This is not news. This is not data. This is not science. This is propaganda. This is bullshit. Bill Maher has been surprising me lately, and we just got to get right into this. He has a new rule. Give it to me straight, Doc. And finally, new rule. Don't spin me when it comes to my health. <laughs> Over the past year, the COVID pandemic has prompted the medical establishment, the media, and the government to take a scared straight approach to getting the public to comply with their recommendations. Well, I'm from a different school. Give it to me straight, Doc. Because <laughs> in the long run, that always works better than you can't handle the truth. Preach, son, preach. Um, Now, I get it. Doctors tell people lies because they don't trust you to finish the antibiotics after your dick starts feeling better. <laughs> and media? Well, I think we all know if it bleeds, it leads. The more, they can, the more they can get you to stay inside and watch their panic porn, the higher the ratings. Researchers at Dartmouth built a database recently monitoring the COVID coverage of the major news outlets across the world and found that while other countries mix the good news in with the bad, the U.S. national media reported almost 90% bad news. 90% bad news. Don't mix the good in with the bad. Don't, don't give us facts. Don't give it to us straight. And 90% negative coverage. <clears throat> Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. And politicians, they lie because it's their nature to cover their ass so they don't get blamed if things go yep. badly and also to keep in practice. And that's the thing too. We talk about the politicians like that is 100% people covering their ass just in case It's playing it way too safe. Same thing that Fauci does. The dude, the dude is he, he he's, his responsibility is to cover his ass and take the methods that he knows and distribute them around the world with zero conflict. Doesn't have to defend himself at all. He's going to be like, well, we'll, we'll be done with this when there's zero cases. As if that's ever going to be the case. It's not. But they cover their asses. And we get, they get called liars and, and, and manipulative, and maybe there's a, quite a bit of that. But at the end of the day, it's, it's pure self-interest. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
But when all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us, yeah, you wind up with a badly misinformed population, including on the left. Liberals, especially on the left in this case, often mock the Republican misinformation bubble, which of course is very real. <laughs> Ask anyone who works at Hillary's pizza parlor. <laughs> <laughs> And we do know conservatives have some loopy ideas about COVID, like the third of Republicans who believe it couldn't be spread by someone showing no symptoms. But what about liberals? You know, the high information by the science people? In a recent Gallup survey, Democrats did much worse than Republicans priceless. in getting the right answer to the fundamental question, what are the chances that someone who gets COVID will need to be hospitalized? The answer is between one and 5%. 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. <laughs> Another 28% put the chances at 20 to 49. So almost 70% mm. of Democrats are wildly off on this key question and also have a greatly exaggerated view of the danger of COVID-2 and the mortality rate among children. All of which explains why today the states with the highest share of schools that are still closed are all blue states. So if the right-wing media bubble has to own things like climate change denial, shouldn't liberal media have to answer for, how did your audience wind up believing such a bunch of crap about COVID? It's so important to say, like, you seem like Republicans were the party of science denial, like not that long ago. Like 10 years ago, it was climate change denial and just everything. I mean, they were like anti-gay marriage, this whole, the whole thing. It was just like they were, they were silly. It was a silly thing. That is completely flipped. <laughs> now the climate change people are coming around finally, you know, because it's politically advantageous. And now the Democrats are the party of, of, of science and data denial. It's so funny how those, 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 those scripts flipped so fast. A, a new report in The Atlantic says the media won't stop putting pictures of the beach on stories about COVID, even though it's looking increasingly like the beach is the best place to avoid it. Sunlight is the best disinfected, and vitamin D is the key to a robust immune system. Texas lifted... He said, very controversially. <laughs> ...its COVID restrictions recently, and their infection rates went down, in part because of people getting outside to let the sun and wind do their thing. Yes, sir. But, but to many liberals, that can't be right, because Texas and beach-loving Florida have Republican governors. <laughs> but life is complicated. I've read that the governor of Florida reads. <laughs> I, I know we like to think of Florida as only middle school teachers on bath salts having sex with their students in front of an alligator. <laughs> but apparently the governor is also a voracious consumer of the scientific literature. And maybe that's why he protected his most vulnerable population, the elderly, way better than did the governor of New York. Ooh, you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to say that, sir. Those are just facts. I know it's irresponsible of me to say them. <laughs> 
Look, here's what I'm saying. I don't want politics mixed in with my medical decisions. Oh, dude, it feels so, it feels so good. It feels so good for someone like Bill Maher to say that with a, with a mostly liberal audience. And it, it, it just, God damn, that feels good. And now that everything is politics, that's all we do. If their side says COVID is nothing, our side has to say it's everything. Trump said it would go away like a miracle. <laughs> and we said it was World War Z. <laughs> Trump said we should ingest household disinfectants. And we laughed, as we should, of course. And then it turned out 19% of America was literally drenching the fruit in Clorox. And now, of course, we find out that all that paranoia about surfaces will bullshit anyway. Even though we spend hours and hours wiping our knobs with Lysol. And if you've ever wiped your knob with Lysol. <laughs> I think you know. Now go home and wash the mail. If you lie to people, even for a very good cause, you lose their trust. Yep. I think a lot of people, thank you. <laughs> I think a lot of people died because of Trump's incompetence. And I think a lot of people died because talking about obesity had become a third rail in America. Oh no, oh no, here we go. Let's see where this goes. America. I, I know you've heard me pound this fried drumstick before. <laughs> but since I last mentioned it, a stunning statistic was reported. 78% of those hospitalized, ventilated, or dead from COVID have been overweight. It is the key piece of the puzzle, by far the most pertinent factor, but you dare not speak its name. Imagine how many lives could have been saved if there had been some national campaign a la Michelle Obama's Let's Move program with the urgency of the pandemic behind it. If the what a world that would be. If the media and the doctors had made a point to keep saying, but there's something you can do, but we'll never know because they never did. Because the last thing you want to do is say something insensitive. We would literally rather die. Instead, instead we were told to lock down. Unfortunately, the killer was already in the house, and her name is Little Debbie. <laughs> All right, so Bill Maher just absolutely, absolutely crushed that. And like I said, it feels so good to hear that coming from someone. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, a standard Democrat, comedian, yada, yada. But like people have been, we've been saying this all along, right? And of course, I don't have the platform to like make this kind of impact. But the fact that it's being spoken on a, on a stage like this means that we're moving in the right direction. And I don't mean me, we as in Democrats, because that's not my camp. And I don't even mean me as or we as in uh, independence. What I mean is, as a culture, we're like, all right, you guys fucked up, right? When you had companies like CrossFit um, putting out saying, hey, here's a bunch of free at home exercises that you can do to get yourself moving while you're at home with no weights. If you have a kettlebell, like whatever you have, we can make something work for you here. Like those people were out there doing the good work while you have someone like Tony Fauci 
talking about wearing more than one mask and wearing a mask after you're vaccinated and blowing smoke up everybody's ass when there was people out there doing good work and there was no contradiction, right? There was not a, there was not a group of epidemiologists that maybe just didn't agree on certain things to come to some kind of consensus based on the way they perceive the data with their expertise. And don't think that Anthony Fauci is like all is like the, 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 the only epidemiologist or whatever the fuck he is like out in the world. That's as qualified as he is. He just happens to know the right people. So when you know that there's more people out there with conflicting ideas and, and, and maybe more productive ideas, and you hinge it all on this one person's advice who is, <laughs> has every incentive in the world to keep this thing going, whether it's for his own validation, for his own relevance, or for his own bank account, uh, we got to be mindful of that. We've got to be mindful of that and be critical of that. And finally, it's happening from the left, and I, I, I appreciate that because we, we've had this this whole thing has been propagandized into some kind of right wing movement of anti vax and anti regulation and anti restriction and and right wing snowflakes. When people like me, who are very firmly not on the fucking right, and have many friends who are not also not on the right that want to speak up and do our best to speak up and get called something we're not in order to like belittle us into into thinking that our ideology is less valuable is fucking uncommon. It's, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And it's only further dividing us, which, you know, I am very much against or over nothing over fucking nothing. The surfaces, I have to go to the gym. I've got to spray down all of my equipment with a fucking disinfectant, which is actually, I'm, I'm more scared of the disinfectant breathing that shit in than I'm breathing in COVID by the way. Then I got to mop the floor where I was working out. Mop a rubber fucking floor where I was working out because of COVID. And we come to find out now that it doesn't transmit on surfaces, which most people have known for months. But we're still doing this dumb circle jerk because of politics, not because of health, not because of what's right, because of fucking politics. If there's ever a case for, for, the, for there not to be a world where everything is fucking politics, this is it. And I'm so, it just feels so good to see this. And I had to share this with everybody. And with all that, whew, long one today. We're trying some new things. We're doing a good job. I feel, I feel good about it. But now, I'm going to give you something to think about. So I was thinking about the movie, the purge the other day, I was thinking about the movie, the purge and some things crossed my mind. You know, the fun thing, the thing about the movie, the purge is that it actually kind of, it's close enough. You suspend disbelief in that movie a little bit, but it was close enough to reality and the way that they were living to to see that being in some, you know, some potential reality being a thing, the purge, you know, and if you look, if you follow that movie's kind of sequence, it goes into where the, the, it seemed to be the purge is really just to get rid of, of poor people and, um, violent people and, and was kind of a low class cleansing, if you will, which is very problematic. But what if we did this instead? 
What if instead of that kind of purge, we had a, a, a hyper-partisan purge? Take Antifa, take QAnon, all the people who think that everybody that's a, a conservative is a, is a fascist and everybody who's left of center is a communist and really has convictions about that. And you take them up to a, a field in Montana, bust them in, old school style, Civil War style, line them up and be like, all right, here you go. Do your thing. If you think these people are trying to destroy your country and you're willing to go for it, then send it, motherfucker. Let's go. It's wartime. Put your money where your mouth is. How much, how much do you really believe this bullshit you tweet all the time? You want to put your neck on the line for it? Let's go. And maybe every four years before the election, we have our partisan purge. We get the hyper-partisan dickheads that are loudest on Twitter in a situation in the wild to have at it. I think we'd all be better off with a partisan purge once every four years. Maybe we limit it to maybe 10,000 people on each side. You have to apply. Volunteer as tribute. <laughs> I don't know. We'll have some, and we'll make it even because, you know, obviously the conservatives would have better weapons and they're obviously going to have a better idea how to use them. But the left has some stuff going on too. So we just, you know, we'll just give them some of that leftover, some of that leftover, leftover Raytheon shit and just let them go to town like Halo style and just see what happens. They get to, you know, they get to fight for their beliefs. And then we don't have to listen to their bullshit online. It seems like a win-win to me, but nonetheless, it's something to think about. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And I appreciate everybody's support as we kind of change the show and, and update things and try new things out. They've been a little bit longer. If you want to submit a video, make sure to DM me one on Instagram, follow the rules, and we'll get you on the show. Love you guys. Join the Patreon. Do it. Links in the show notes of this show. Patreon.com slash politically homeless. Keep your head on straight. See you next time. Bye.